2: This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, a tug of war between Silicon Valley and Washington. The Department of Justice is now involved in calls for social media's responsible content moderation. Former White House Chief Technology Officer Anish Chopra.
3: If you agree that there's a problem, that there's information online that's propagated that perhaps is doing more harm, then the question is do you want to see more engagement to bring some of that information off? Or is, do you want to see less?
2: And the head of the Anti-Defamation League says Facebook should be doing more to see less of that content, his Stop Hate for Profit campaign.
4: This company is worth almost $700 billion. The idea that they can't tackle this problem, is, I think, laughable.
2: Plus, a conversation special to this podcast, Netflix CEO Reed Hastings donates $120 million to historically black colleges and raises the bar for corporate leaders.
5: We wanna help draw attention to the HBCUs, to them being part of the solution um, for America and for uh, black children to aspire to.
2: Those stories and more. It's Thursday, June 18th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. First up on today's podcast, the latest in big tech's tug of war with Washington, D.C. This week, the Department of Justice unveiled a proposal to Congress with recommended changes to Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996 dry though that may sound this legislation is critical to the way internet companies and social media moderate the content on their platforms and avoid legal retribution while doing so it establishes internet companies as platforms rather than publishers while still allowing those actors some say over what's posted there recode went so far as to call it the legal backbone of the internet. The DOJ's proposal suggests rolling back part of that backbone, specifically the immunity shield that protects internet platforms from liability for the content posted there. Under Section 230, as it stands, the Facebooks and Twitters of the world reserve the right to moderate anything they find obscene, lewd, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable. Among other things, the Department of Justice recommends removing that phrase, otherwise objectionable, on account of being too vague. This is all in the wake of President Trump's spat with Twitter last month after the platform started to fact check for other users his tweets on voter fraud. That culminated in an executive order from the president seeking a scale back of Section 230 and the protections it provides.
6: Thank you very much. We're here today to defend free speech from one of the gravest dangers it has faced in American history, frankly. A small handful of powerful social media monopolies controls a vast portion of all public and private communications.
2: Here's Joe Kernan with today's story.
7: Joining us now is Anish Chopra, the former White House Chief Technology Officer under President Obama, current president of Care Journey, a healthcare analytics firm. Anish. Last time you were on, and that, that wasn't the only time, you've been begging, begging for the industry to figure out how to do this with stakeholders in mind and how to do it themselves to prevent something like this, and they just, I don't know, they just have not, and, and now this is, this is what you're, you're seeing. It, it's a baby step, which it's not going to become law, do you think, but, but, but it just shows something's going on here
3: uh, that they should have tackled it themselves already. Well, you know, it's a 25-year-old piece of legislation, and it's kept the industry in a reasonably strong footing. It's an obvious economic success story, but it was designed originally to give safe haven or room for the industry to do more to protect consumers. And we see today the challenges, misinformation even amidst the pandemic, challenges around election interference, and even obviously historical challenges around uh, terrorism and, and content around that. We have to see the industry do more. I will say uh, several former colleagues of mine have now launched a professional society, getting the safety professionals and in the, in the working on the ground in these companies to come together to share best practices. But we have to do more to bring responsibility uh, in these environments. And the industry can do this uh, on its own. And, and the debate now is, does there need to be some baseline uh, standards or requirements? And that's going to be a healthy part of the discussion. This piece of uh, activity we're seeing here is more akin to political theater. Uh, yep. But as we move forward, I think there is going to be a, an opportunity for a, a thoughtful discussion around uh, how to set the right rules of the road for the next chapter of the Internet.
7: Politically, it's hard to figure out who's where. I mean, it's bizarre. It's like there's there are some strange bedfellows here. The DOJ looks like it's trying to thread the needle uh, between I- extremes and find some middle ground, like leave the Section 230 in there. But but make certain things. Uh, if they're, for example, criminal, that, then that would give you a there, there's certain carve outs you've had. But then you got someone like Vice President Biden wants to just get rid of Section 230, right? A, because some people, it seems like the left is worried about election uh, finagling and the right's worried about uh, conservative groups being kicked off of Twitter or Facebook. So you don't know, it's bizarre. Can
3: you, can you uh, describe the landscape to me? Just to give you a little perspective, if, if, you, if you agree that there's a problem, that there's information online that's propagated that perhaps is doing more harm, then the question is, do you want to see more engagement to bring some of that information off, or is do you want to see less? And I think that's the, the divide that you saw if you think of the good, the bad, and the ugly coming out of the, the DOJ report. The, the bad, if you were to think about, if you believe that there should be more misinformation, uh, less uh, moderation... Uh, then you might embrace some of the provisions in the DOJ report that say, "Look, unless it's absolutely, you know, uh, uh, criminal or, or or very specifically, you know, narrowed, you can't really moderate." I'm not so sure that's where the majority of the American people are. I think the majority of the American people want to have honesty in our elections. Uh, they want to have some consistency and experience with respect to how uh, misinformation is propagated. And to me, that means the industry should do more. And I think when you hear uh, politicians on both sides of the aisle bring this issue up, the premise is in part get the industry to move, but it's also to say failure to move is going to require us to set some baseline rules. You've seen this in the privacy debate where there's now almost bipartisan movement around establishing baseline fair information practice standards. So we have privacy protections on the Internet. How we get there and finding a piece of legislation is going to take some time, but at least there's some rough consensus. In this area, the the political parties seem to be at odds on whether we need more moderation or less. I'm on the more side, but I'm hopeful that the more will come from the industry getting a little bit more organized together on uh, the ways we see it on the criminal side with intellectual property theft, if, if you accuse uh, the platforms of, of uh, co- stealing your copyright, your music, they have built technologies, they've built them to help identify those uh, areas of copyright infringement, which is criminal, and it, they've moved some of that information uh, in a more thoughtful way offline. So the notice and takedown procedures reflect a bit of an industry feather right. to get there. And we just need to see some of that on the misinformation and election interference side.
7: I don't know. I need it. Ben Franklin. I need uh, plus. uh, Josh Hawley wants to revoke it. Yet most conservatives, if you revoked it, then they'd be complaining about frivolous litigation, which they hate. They want to. So who's it's just I don't know who's everybody's on the wrong side of where they normally are on a lot of these issues. So I I don't know. I, I need help
3: out of the political lens and into the right answer for the economy. The right answer is this is an engine of economic growth. Companies are now more mature and have capabilities and we still have room for disruptive innovators to come in. Right,
7: just- it's all subjective though. I don't know how you, you, you write down a list of things that you definitely want to do when it's going to be subjective instead of objective. So it should be that the, the industry itself needs to do this or you need, yes. to get, you need to quit your job you're having, go back and, and, and help with this, Sanif. Anyway, th- thanks. Appreciate it. And uh, I'm sure we're, okay. we're going to need to talk to
1: you again in, in a couple of weeks because this is not going away. Meantime, yesterday, several civil rights organizations, including the Anti-Defamation League and the NAACP, took out a full page ad in the Los Angeles Times urging big advertisers to boycott Facebook next month. The campaign hashtag Stop Hate for Profit is in response to what the group says is Facebook's repeated failures to address hate On its platforms, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, who's also faced criticism from inside his own company, says people will now be able to opt out of seeing political ads on Facebook. Joining us right now is Jonathan Greenblatt. He's the CEO uh, and the national director of the Anti-Defamation League. Good morning to you, Jonathan. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tell us. Tell us about this effort and, and, and tell us specifically, you've been in talks with Facebook for quite some time. Uh, about this issue. What's the back and forth been like?
4: Um, It's been challenging. We have been working with Facebook for years. We have a center in Silicon Valley that deals with hate speech on social media. And Facebook, which is far and away the largest such platform in the world, we've been engaged with them over the years to finally do something about hate speech. And we felt like in the wake of the death of George Floyd, it had just reached a boiling point which is why the NAACP, Color of Change, Common Sense Media, Sleeping Giants, Free Press, all these groups came together to finally say it's time for Facebook to do something. It's time to stop hate for profit.
1: And so what have your conversations been with advertisers? Because, as you know, advertisers have been reluctant uh, to jump into uh, these debates. And frankly, given the fact that that Facebook has such a, a large market share in terms of uh, online advertising especially during this pandemic i imagine it must make it harder for businesses to make a decision like this
4: well yes and no we've actually had a number of conversations with big fortune 500 brands who we're talking to right now remember the campaign just launched yesterday but what's important is that this isn't a boycott to permanently abandon facebook at an advertising platform this isn't a walkout to say you should never use the service. This is a pause to show Facebook that there are consequences when it doesn't deal with the racism on the platform, when it doesn't deal with the conspiracy theories on the platform, when it doesn't deal with the anti-Semitism and Holocaust denialism on the platform. And frankly, all forms of hate. I mean, at the ADL, we track extremists and we found white nationalists literally using Facebook to organize their efforts to disrupt the pro- the protests over the past several weeks. We saw examples on Facebook of conspiracy theories that George Floyd was paying protesters, uh, ex- that George Soros, excuse me, was paying protesters, or that George Floyd was some kind of actor. Look, the time has come for the company to say, we are not going to allow this kind of hate, which is further dividing our country to proliferate on their platform. And businesses can make these decisions all the time. Businesses have the right to say what will happen in their store or on their service and what they won't tolerate. And I think as the country struggles with issues of racial justice, as the country struggles with issues of extraordinary division, we think rather than waiting for Washington to act, business has a role to play to say, we support the quest for racial justice We support the quest to tackle hate, and we want to push Facebook,
1: show Facebook, that if they don't take action, the bottom line will suffer. Uh, You mentioned government and uh, waiting for government to act. Uh, You know what's now on the table. Do you think that Facebook and other social media platforms should be liable for the information that's on their service?
4: Yeah, I saw Joe's talk with my former colleague, Anish Chopra, just a few minutes ago. 230 is very complicated. The reason why we have the Internet that we know today, from Facebook to Wikipedia to so many other services, is literally because of the creative latitude that 230 provides. But let me tell you something. When they drafted that, you know, 20 some odd years ago, the intent wasn't to think that companies would allow neo-Nazis to manipulate their services. The thought wasn't that it would allow racism to proliferate. So whether the the company should be liable or not, whether they have a legal liability, I would argue they have a moral liability to do more to make sure that all of their users are safe and secure.
1: Right. Jonathan, let me ask you this. Um, You know, we had Mark Zuckerberg on the program actually just a couple of weeks ago.
5: Some of the stuff that people share on the Internet is real junk and um, and it's it's completely made up and you don't want that stuff to be the stuff that's that's going the most viral. Um, so, we have a program where we work with independent fact checkers um, on that um, to make sure that things that are completely hoaxes are are, are can can be limited in their spread um, but that 's you know the point of that program isn 't to like try to parse words on is something slightly true or false it 's really to catch the worst of the worst stuff um, in terms of political speech again, I think you want to give broad deference to. Um, to the to the political process and political speech. And
1: I, I, I don't want to speak for him, but I, I believe if he was here today, he would say, look, we've made a, a lot of strides on this issue. We may not catch everything we are trying. Do you believe they're trying? Is it an issue of that they're not trying hard enough, that they're not taking this seriously enough? Is this an issue of bad algorithms and just a, a whack-a-mole game that's almost impossible to win? What What do you think is happening inside Facebook?
4: Well, I think there are a few things. Look, I've dealt with Mark and Cheryl and so many executives there, they are good people and they have made some effort, but not nearly enough. They need to apply the same urgency that they apply to copyright protection. And look, this company is worth almost $700 billion. It is one of the most innovative companies in the history of the markets. I mean, literally, what they've been able to do, it's WhatsApp, it's Oculus, it's Portal, it's Insta, and it's Facebook. The idea that they can't tackle this problem is, I think, laughable, but they need to feel the urgency. And if Fortune 500 brands knew, at ADL we have found many examples of Fortune 500 brands flighted against QAnon conspiracies, flighted against white nationalist content, Slighted against some of the worst things that I know have nothing to do with these brands,
1: Jonathan, got uh, We appreciate uh, you joining us, and we hope to have you back. Uh, understand uh, how this progresses over time.
2: Next on SquawkPod, Netflix CEO Reed Hastings on his 120 million dollar donation to historically black colleges and universities.
5: This moment is not the first time that racism's reared its you know terribly ugly head. And many of us have been working on these issues for a long time.
2: The full conversation that you'll hear only on this podcast, right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Netflix CEO Reed Hastings is committing $120 million to institutions dedicated to the higher education of students of color. Hastings will donate $40 million each to the UNCF and Historically Black Spelman and Morehouse Colleges. It is the largest individual gift ever in support of student scholarships at Historically Black Colleges and Universities. The donation from Hastings and his wife, Patty Quillen, comes amid new renewed calls for racial justice after the police killing of George Floyd, an unarmed black man in Minneapolis. And the black community has been disproportionately sickened by the coronavirus, showing the gaping disparities in access to quality health care across minority communities. Andrew Ross Sorkin spoke with Hastings and the leaders of those three institutions. You'll hear from them all in this next interview special to Squawk Pod. Mary Schmidt Campbell is the president of Spelman College. David Thomas. Is the president of Morehouse and Michael Lomax is the CEO of UNCF. Here's Andrew.
1: Thank you, uh, all, all of you, uh, for doing this and congratulations. Uh, Reed, I want to start with you just to understand how this came about.
5: You know, I've been working in education, um, K-12 primarily, for more than 20 years and uh, Dr. Michael Lomax and I are on a board together of KIPP Public Schools Uh, It's 100,000 kids, Latino and black kids in America, who get a great education and go on to college. And um, through that time, he helped me realize that um, there's many good places to donate, but the HBCUs in America are 150 years old, incredibly resilient, uh, producing amazing numbers of black graduates and that I should be open to think about um, those schools also. And then he got me to come down and visit uh, Spellman and Morehouse. And Patty, my wife and I were just blown away, not by these great presidents on this call, they're very nice, but by the students um, and what it meant for them to be just surrounded by so many black scholars uh, and how reinforcing it was. And so uh, we're stepping up with this 120 million dollar gift. Um, you know, we want to help draw attention to the HBCUs, to them being part of the solution um, for America and for uh, Black children to aspire to. And so we're we're so proud. But really, the credit is with uh,
1: Dr. Lomax. Can you speak, though, so briefly just to this moment in in terms of the impetus? For yeah, I mean, this you know this moment is not the
5: first time that racism's reared its you know terribly ugly head and many of us have been working on these issues for a long time um again for me mostly through education and my visits and my understanding my relationships with all of my colleagues here was all pre this crisis but then you bring COVID in and the stress i mean The typical uh, black family knows many more COVID victims than the typical white family, because COVID has hit so hard in the black community. Uh, And then of course you've got the police violence and the killings. And so the amount of tragedy really did get us to um, focus and say, let's do something now um, that will be supportive of these great institutions
1: and give people some sense of hope. Mary, tell us how this is going to change things for the university. You know, you look at the endowments of of some of these great historically black colleges in America, and they are in the hundreds of millions of dollars at best. And then you look at the Harvards of the world, and they're not just in the billions, but at 40 plus billion dollars.
8: Yes, Uh, the the fact of the matter is, is that the the gift that Patty and Reed has made is is really transformational. Um, You talk about the endowment, it's not just that we don't have the same resources, It's that we've taken on the responsibility of educating more of our students who are without financial resources themselves. Um, 60% of Morehouse's students are eligible for Pell, 48% of Spelman's. That means that virtually half of our populations come from families that make $40,000 or less. So here you have, in this country, You have the colleges with the least resources taking on the responsibility of educating at a high level the students who need resources most. And so having Patty and Reed make this contribution is especially important because they've spent a lifetime thinking about and committing and investing in eliminating educational inequity. Uh, Spelman's been a a college partner with KIPP for several years now. And so we, we know how important it is to start that investment from uh, preschool right on up through high school and, and into college. And they've, they've been there every step of the way. So to have them affirm the kind of work that we do at Spelman and Morehouse is to say to the country, this is really important, necessary work.
1: D- David, let's talk about getting more donations, uh, because we've got to get more money into these universities and colleges um, let me ask you this you got a great donation about uh, a year ago now uh, from Robert Smith but how important it is to try to find money outside of your own alumni base? Uh, it's very important and the reality is that um,
6: for example, in our alumni base we have we have many uh, alumni who have done quite well but uh, I don't think we have any billionaires. <laughs> Uh, and so, what Robert Smith did last year, uh, what um, Patty and Reed are doing now, allows us to transform at an accelerated rate of speed. And the reality is that we we have to do more and do it faster right. to, to a better place uh, to continue to get the best students who have opportunities to go other places, and in some cases, no choice, because they don't have family who have extra resources to give them. Um, and our ability to continue to attract those students
1: makes us attractive, more attractive even to those students who have resources to pay. Right. Let me bring Michael into the conversation. Michael, in a perfect world, blue sky, mm-hmm. if you, how much money Do you need right now? We're going to do almost like a telethon here. If we could raise money today, I'm not joking. How much money, I mean, don't don't say unlimited, but how much money do you think you could use and need today that would be game-changing? So
9: UNCF has an HBCU, Strategic Impact Investment Fund. I have been rebuilding that fund for the last two weeks Today, it stands at $60 million. Uh, It needs to be at $1 billion. Uh, The near-term focus of this fund is the reopening uh, of our Black colleges uh, with strong enrollments, uh, safe environments for our students, and uh, great technology and in-person teaching. But the long-term goal is, Full recovery and transformation uh, to achieve both the short term goal and the long term goal $1 billion in the strategic, the UNCF Strategic Impact Investment Fund.
8: Andrew, we actually did the calculation for Spelman uh, to determine what was the gap after all financial aid had been expended, what was the financial gap that remained? And it's about $40 million a year that still has to be closed for our students. And and I would venture to guess it's the same uh, at Morehouse. At and then we did the calculation, well, what kind of endowment would you need for that? So we got those figures.
1: So Reed, let me come back to you. I'm not asking you for all the money this moment, but let me ask you this. Um, you have a lot of colleagues who've had a lot of success and I'm thinking of people like Mayor Bloomberg, Michael Bloomberg, who gave $1.8 billion to Johns Hopkins and a lot of other uh, successful people with remarkable careers uh, who've given to um, a lot of the Ivy League schools and others. What do you tell them? Have you had conversations with them about this and this potential opportunity? You know, we all
5: tend to give to the institutions that we know and love. And, you know, uh, when I started, I've been mostly donating to a wonderful college that I went to, Bowdoin College in Maine. Um, And it was really the work of Michael Lomax in helping me to get to know the HBU system that really uh, opened it up. So I I think we'll start now, you know, with this donation of sort of maybe an idea of, you know, if you're going to give a big gift to your alma mater, go ahead and do that. Um, But also give one uh, to the HBCUs. And the easy way to start is with UNCF because it's broad, as sort of the, the united way of the system. Um, And then you can get to know the individual institutions. So uh, giving both to your own alma mater and giving to the HBCUs is a a great way to go. Let
1: me ask you a question as a corporate leader in this environment at this particular moment and also recognizing that Netflix has done a lot better uh, than a number of the other Silicon Valley companies when it comes to creating a a diverse workforce. you have about 8% African-Americans uh, in, in, at Netflix, at least that's what's been disclosed publicly, um, which, and I, I'm sure you wanna do better than that, but on a relative basis to, to the rest of the Valley, what do you think you're doing right? And what do you think you, you have still some work to do?
5: Well, mostly we have a long way to go. Um, so, uh, you know, in the US, uh, black people are about 13, 14% of the population. So, you know, we significantly underskew. Some of that is because we're in California. Um, but we're working on all aspects of it. Um, we've doubled in the last three years, the percentages. So they were three to 4%. Um, and, you know, they've come all up a lot. And, you know, it's a lot of the contact networks that people have of, you know, how do you get in? And we forget how much the social glue and, and we have relative social isolation between the, the large black community and white communities. Um, you know, on the margin, there's connectivity, and that's great. Um, So those are some of the factors that we're looking to overcome and to continue to increase both our representation and our inclusion in trying to be a a black-friendly organization. It's amazing how easy it is to um, have, uh, it you know, uh, even a company that's trying hard like Netflix not be that comfortable for black employees at times. And so, you know, it's something that we all have to work on. Our Black employees work on it hard, and the rest of us work on it also.
0: SquawkPod, we'll be right back. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities which are some of the world's lowest carbon-intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.
2: You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin.
1: Meantime, if you're a music fan, Spotify reaching a deal with reality star I shouldn't say a music fan. If, you're, if, you, if you keep AirPods in your ears all the time, Kim Kardashian West is now going to be hosting a podcast focused on criminal justice. You can only listen to it on Spotify. Terms have not been disclosed. The show will be connected to her work with the Innocence Project, a nonprofit that fights wrongful convictions. And Spotify has been trying to lock up a lot of exclusive deals with popular podcasts. Last month, you might remember, it struck a licensing deal worth more than $100 million for Joe Rogan's podcast, uh, what's now considered, I believe, the... Most popular podcast in the country. Uh, time is a good. Uh, this uh, may be a good time to also mention that you should uh, listen to our podcast, which you can get on Spotify too. Squawk Pod, uh, every weekday, featuring news, interviews, and behind the scenes access. Um, we're uh, we're available everywhere, guys. We're not it's Spotify. You can get on Apple, you, wherever your favorite podcast can be found. What did Rogan get? What, what, there was a number out there or something. Do you remember? The, so, no, the number out there is 100. <laughs> I think, to, to be honest, based even on my own reporting, and I think it's actually uh, higher than 100. I think it's probably in the 100. <laughs> for a, I don't a know, podcast. Maybe 150-ish range for a for podcast. It's I'm basically he's doing, the what, equivalent what, with, of a with, daily
7: radio show. With, right, but with... with- like, I haven't decided what to do with our podcast money yet. You know what I mean? I mean, I don't have a place uh, in oh, Florida. Right. Um, yeah. I haven't open? Spent, I haven't spent any of it. I guess because I haven't seen right. any of it. Uh, yeah. Is there any? How does this I work here? I haven't seen it does either. It, uh, huh? You haven't either? I think they I'm pay you based the- on your talent. I'm- you know what you guys should have said? <laughs> <laughs> Both of you said you should have said you're getting paid. It's like, really? You haven't paid anything? You haven't got yours. Okay, so we are all no, they, in the they
1: same pay boat. Us all based on
2: the been, of I go to the, the mailbox that every morning. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thank you for listening. This would be a good time to tell you that Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. This podcast is produced by me, Katie Kramer, Cameron Costa, and Caroline O'Brien. John Masration is our editor. So, Spotify, you better send separate checks.
0: We'll meet you back here tomorrow.